For those of you who do not know me, my name is Josiah McDaniel. I'm the administrator here at Fletcher. It's my privilege to come and, and share the word with you this morning. Uh, this morning we'll be in 1 John chapter 1, so I invite you to turn your Bibles there. Uh, and as, we, uh, well, as you're turning there, I just want to share a story with you this morning. Uh, so when I was in kindergarten, we had these uh, big fat pencils that, that I, I guess they were designed to help and little bitty hands with stubby fingers grip them when they're learning how to write their letters, uh, and, and we use those. But when my family, uh, or excuse me, my family moved halfway through uh, this, that school year, so I was enrolled in a new school, and they used those pencils, except the ones they used didn't have erasers on, on the ends of them, uh, and mine did. And apparently they had this big rule about not erasing, and I, I still to this day do not know why, but that was the rule. Because I can clearly remember my teacher uh, looking at my pencils and um, trying desperately to remove the racers fr from the ends of my pencils. And, uh, and she was unsuccessful, so she finally gave up and warned me, whatever you do, do not use the eraser that's on the, the end of your pencil. And so, well, not too long after that, I was uh, filling out my name on, on, on my writing sheet, and you probably guessed it by now, I misspelled something. I, I transposed a couple letters in my own name. I had misspelled my own name, but give me a break because I was six, so, you know, there's that. Um, but anyway, I did what anyone would do. I realized I had made a mistake, and I turned my pencil over, and I began to carefully try to erase the wrong letters and write them back in the correct order. And I don't know whether or not she actually saw me do this, but I'm sure there was evidence enough on the paper, you know, how cleanly can a, can a six-year-old erase from a paper, and I'm sure that the, the, the pencil eraser itself had scuff marks on it that, that, that proved that I, I had done that. And later on, the teacher asked me, did you erase on the paper? And because I was embarrassed to admit that I had misspelled my own name, and because I was afraid to get in trouble, I lied, and I said no. I was guilty. I knew I had broken a rule, but I was also desperate to keep up the lie of innocence. So every day after writing time for the rest of the semester, I would take my pencil and I would slide it into my cubby, eraser first, into the back shadowy corner of the cubby to try to hide the fact that, that, that I had broken a rule, that I was wrong. And I would love to say that that was a one-off experience in my life, but I cannot. You see, my life has been littered by moments where I tried to hide my wrongdoings in the darkness, fearful of reprisal, fearful of consequences. But, but I'm not alone because that is the story of all humanity from the outset. When Adam and Eve's eyes were open to recognize their sin in the garden in the very beginning, they hid themselves from God in the shadow of the trees. They used fig leaves to try to camouflage their nakedness. You see, the intimate fellowship they had once experienced with God was now shattered, and they ran from God in fear. And even when God confronted them about their sin, what did they do? They still chose to hide, this time by shifting blame from one to another instead of owning their sin, instead of confessing it. And the story has been the same for every one of their descendants. 
we as fallen humanity, we hide our sins because first and foremost, let's be honest, we like our sins. We don't like to admit that very often, but we do. That's why we do them. And two, we're fearful of God's judgment should our sins be exposed. And we're not afraid for for no reason, right? We sung this morning that God is completely holy. He does not tolerate sin. But God also promised a remedy, a solution for, for their sins of humanity from the very outset. God would send a second Adam who would not make the mistakes of the first Adam. Through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, to atone for the awful and dark sins of all humanity. And see, on the cross, that second Adam, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he hung exposed, bearing all the, all the sin of humanity, bearing all of God's righteous judgment against us to provide us restoration, fellowship to the Father and each other. You see, because God... Uh, because Christ bore God's wrath in our place. We who have received Christ by faith, we are made fit to walk in fellowship with God, with a holy God. And, and, we, and we can find forgiveness for our sins. You see, because Christ was exposed in our place, we no longer have to hide in shame and guilt. We are forgiven. We are forgiven from the penalty of sin and we can be forgiven from the practice of sin as we honestly confess our, our sins to God. And that's what we're going to see in today's text in 1 John 1. John will encourage us that life in Christ is marked by fellowship and confession. So let's read it. 1 John 1, where we're going to, we're going to begin with verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and we declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is, is not in us. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you this morning that there is a remedy for sin in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that truth this morning. Father, help us to realize that this morning. Open our eyes to see the areas in which we hide. And Father, help us to come into the light and to find hope and, and restoration and forgiveness and cleansing this morning. Father, I'm sure without you I can do nothing. Father, I pray that you would use this time in a special way that you would speak through your word. Father, we know you promised to do that. And Father, I pray that, uh, that, that our hearts would be in tune with yours and that we'd be obedient to that word this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So life in Christ is marked by fellowship and confession. So uh, the letter, uh, 
of, of 1 John, he, he's writing to encourage believers that they can have genuine assurance of, sa- of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, he tells us that in, in, in chapter 5, verse 13. And as believers living confidently in assurance, we can have fellowship with the Father through the work of Jesus Christ and with each other, and we can experience a fullness of joy. And, and he shares that in the, the verses leading up to our passage today, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And so along the way, John is going to highlight some key characteristics of genuine believers. And he's going to give us sort of proofs or tests to see uh, what true faith is. He's going to show us what it is and what it isn't so that we can test ourselves. We can examine ourselves and know for certain that we are in the faith. And so in this portion of, the, of, the, of John's letter, he, he highlights spiritual, a couple of spiritual markers. And the first one is fellowship with God and other believers. And the second one is an open, honest confession of sin. And these serve as proof of, of a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we're going to see in our text is a foundational truth, which is kind of the, the standard for the, for the rest of the text. And that foundational truth is found in verse 5, and it's this. God is light, not darkness. God is light, not darkness. <clears throat> so look at verse 5 with me again. It says this. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So this is the foundation for this section of the letter, this truth that God is light, not darkness. And so this is going to govern everything that comes after it. There's, you're going to see a lot of if-then statements there in the, in the text. And they, 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 are, they, they are all governed by the fact that God is light, not darkness. So we're going to find out which ones are true and which ones are false based on the objective truth that God is light, not darkness. But what does it mean when, when John says that God is light in this passage? I, I think there's a, there's a threefold answer to that question. So first and foremost, God is light means that he is morally and ethically righteous and without sin, absolutely without sin. Sin cannot abide in his presence. God is light. This, this relates to God's holiness and his purity. You know, the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light. God is completely pure. He, he, is, he is separate from anything, that, 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 that any sin that would taint. Uh, he is completely pure. He is morally and ethically righteous. God is light. Second thing I think it means is that God is absolute truth revealed and illuminating. So God re- reveals truth and he exposes sin. Paul writes this in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So not only is God morally and ethically righteous, he is also absolute truth that reveals and illuminates and exposes. But a third thing I think that, that our text means when it says God is light is that he is the source of all life. God is light means that he is the source of all life. In, in, in John's gospel, uh, in chapter 1, verse 4, he, he writes this, in him, referring to the word Jesus, was life, and, the, and life was the light of men. And in verse 9, he, he says that, that, that Jesus is the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. And, and let, let me give you a, a quick example of light giving light, or excuse me, light giving life. 
You know, a, a few years ago, we went on vacation uh, up, up in Pennsylvania. And uh, one of the day trips we took while we were up there was to a place called Indian Echo Caverns. It was uh, these caverns they had, and you could get, go tour underground. And it made a, a great day trip, uh, especially since it's the summertime and it's hot. And you go underground where it's cool. So we're touring the caves. And I noticed something that our tour guide uh, when we would enter a room into a, a cave, he would turn on the, the, the lighting system they had in there uh, uh, just as we came into, into each room of the cave. And then as soon as we exited the room, he would be, be quick to turn the lights back off. And he told us that the reason that they, they don't keep the lights on for too long is because when the lights are on, invasive plant species start to grow inside the, the cave and it it harms the ecosystem of the cave. But why would, why would these invasive plants grow? Well, it's because light causes life. And that's what we see here. God is light means that he is the source of all life. So when you hear light in this passage, I want you to think righteousness. I want you to think truth. I want you to think life. And when you hear darkness in this passage, I want you to think just the opposite, sin and deception or lies and death. God is light here, so he is absolute truth, absolute righteousness, absolute life. All those who are in Christ will have those. And so, and, and John, he not only says that God is light, but he, he, he attests to the absolute purity of God because he says at the end of verse five, in him there is no darkness at all. There is no darkness in God at all, which stands to reason, right? Because light and darkness cannot exist together. Light will always expel the darkness from it. The light always wins. You, you turn on a light in a, in a dark room, and the room gets lighter. The light doesn't get darker. And that's what, that's what John said in, in John 1.5. He says, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is our foundational truth that we must judge everything else of this passage by. God is light, not darkness. Clear so far. We're there. So there are some implications of that that we're going to see in our text. And the first one is this. Because God is light and not darkness, God's children walk in fellowship with him and each other. This is verses 6 and 7. Follow with me in your text. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So notice in verses 6 and 7, we have two if-then statements. Uh, and these, as I said, they're governed by the objective truth of, of verse 5. The first if-then statement in verse 6 is negative, and the second one in verse 7 is positive. And also notice that the differences between the two of them. In verse 6, you have a, just a claim, right? If we say. But in, but in verse 7, you have action, right? If we walk. Right. As the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words. Yeah, don't tell me, show me. And, and, and that's partially what John is saying here. But what is this claim? What, what is the claim that is being made in verse 6? It's this. I'm claiming to have fellowship with God while at this, and, and once again, the God who is perfect and righteous and holy and without any shred of darkness, 
any, any sort of sin within him, the God who is perfect light, while at the same time walking in darkness myself. You see, these two ideas, they're irreconcilable. They don't go together. You know, the Apostle Paul, he, he asks these rhetorical questions in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. He says, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What, what communion has light with darkness? Obviously, there, there is none. So, so how can someone claim fellowship with, with God and still walk in darkness? You can't, but, but I suppose we need to, to back up and ask ourselves, what does it mean to, ask, to walk in darkness? Well, it, walking in the New Testament, it's, it's used all throughout. Uh, it's used as a descriptor for our manner of life, uh, our thoughts, and our intentions, and our attitudes, and our actions, and our words, our daily life, everything that makes up our daily life. Our walk is simply the natural outflow of our true identity. We do who we are, we live out who we are, and we will time and time again. Our walk is who we really are. You know, Jesus said in John 3, 19 and 20 that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. That's the reason they love darkness is because they are in darkness. And he, and he, he goes on to say that they hate the light and they don't come to the light because they fear having their evil deeds exposed. And, and they love their, their evil works. Uh, similarly, in, in Ephesians 2, uh, we remember this, this famous passage that, that Paul teaches us that when we were dead in trespasses and sin, that was our identity before Christ. What? We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's, that was how we walked because that's who we were apart from Christ. But, but he goes on to say in that Ephesians 2 passage, when we're saved by God's grace uh, through faith in Christ, we are saved into Christ to walk in good works, Ephesians 2.10. And we will walk in those good works because that is our new identity in Christ. So anyone who walks in darkness is only doing so because that is, it, they're just giving evidence of who they really are. They're not in fellowship with the holy God, no matter what they claim. And that's John's then portion of, of verse 6 of this if-then statement. He says, if, if, if we claim fellowship with God and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying. We are not practicing the truth because God is light, not darkness. However, verse seven is the positive flip side of that. If we do walk in the light just as God is in the light, that's evidence of our new identity in Christ and proof of our fellowship with God. You know, Jesus says this in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But notice in verse seven that there's, there's, a, there's a key point here. Uh, because that the fellowship that we have when we walk in the light is not only with God, it is with one another. Did you catch that there in the text? We not only have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another, God's church. This is a helpful reminder for us. If we're walking in true fellowship with God, we will also be walking in true fellowship with his church. Why? Because there's harmony, harmony and there's unity in God. But when we sin, we break that unity. And our natural tendency is to hide in fear from guilt and shame and withdraw from any place of light where the word, the truth, the light might expose our sin. You see, there is a degenerative pattern that happens. You see, 
Darkness breeds suspicion, doesn't it? You know, the, the old saying goes, I'm not afraid of the dark, I'm afraid of what's in it or what might be in it. Uh, darkness breeds suspicion and suspicion breeds doubt and mistrust, which in turn breeds fear. And then we know that fear breeds what, what, what is known as the fight or flight response. And so what we will see is because I fear having my sins exposed, I might choose fight and preemptively attack you instead to avoid having to deal with the consequences of my sin. I might try to attack you instead, change the subject, or two, I fear having my sins exposed, and so I choose flight and I avoid you altogether. And you see, when we avoid, we, we start to gradually move toward the fringes of the church, toward the fringes of Christian community, toward the fringes of the light, so that we can hide in the dark. Maybe we still come to the big gathering at church, and maybe that's you here this morning, I don't know. Maybe we even serve in some capacity within the church. But we won't allow anyone to get close enough to us to see because we're afraid that if they see us for who we really are, they'll see our sin and they'll reject us. We hide in the darkness. We move away from the light. John Phillips puts it uh, this way. He says, how can two walk together in fellowship when one has ulterior motives and the other has something to hide? I, I, I thought that was a clever way to put it, but that's, that's the way it is. We're suspicious of ourselves and we're suspicious of others. And we hide from one another in our, in our own sin and darkness. And remember also that sin is degenerative. Our old nature wants to continue in the sin because it loves it. Our old nature wants to fester in the dark. But fellowship in the light is exactly what we need. Even if it isn't what our old self wants. We need to remember something this morning. Sin is destructive. It only brings death. Darkness only brings death. There is only death on the other side of hiding our sin. I know we fear the consequences, but there's only death on the other side of that. There's death of community. There's death of relationships. There's death of family. There's even physical death. Scripture talks about that. Sin leading to death. However, on the flip side of that, the glorious thought this morning is that there is life and healing found on the other side of exposing our sins, of confessing, of, of repentance. There's life there. And yet Satan, he wants us to hide from the very means of grace of finding hope and help and, and cleansing of our sin. He would have us convinced that the light is evil and to be avoided at all costs. And that seems to make sense from a human standpoint, doesn't it? I realize that I am broken and sinful. How can I possibly walk in fellowship with God? How can I possibly walk in fellowship with others who seem to have it all together? Well, verse 7 closes with the answer to that question. Because it gives us another foundational truth, and that's this. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, it cleanses us from all sin. We are all unclean. We are all sinful by nature. We are all unworthy and unfit to stand before a holy God who is none of those things. But the shed blood of, of Jesus Christ is our sole basis of being able to walk in fellowship with God and with others. 
The implicit truth here is that by accepting God's gracious gift of salvation from sin through, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the righteousness of Christ, which makes us worthy, which transforms us to walk in light, in a new identity of, that is light rather than the old identity, which is darkness. You see, in Christ, we are free to live transparently. Before God, who already knows it, that's the funny thing about Adam and Eve, that they, they, they pretended like God couldn't see them where they were. But it's not really that funny because we do the same thing. We pretend like God can't see us where we are and he doesn't know. But it also frees us to live transparently before our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are just as fallen as we are and yet just as forgiven. That's what Christ does. That's what the blood of Christ does. And so we can live openly and honestly before God and one another without the need to hide in darkness any longer. Because God knows our sin completely, far greater than we ever could. And yet he, he, he has cleansed us through the blood of Jesus Christ. What a thought this morning. That's the first implication. The second one is, is similar to that. And that's, that's this. God's children are honest about their sin and need of forgiveness. This is verses 8 through 10. Follow with me in the text again. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So once again, verses 8 through 10, we have this time three if-then clauses. Verses 8 and 10 are kind of parallel false claims made by those who are in darkness, not in light. And they kind of sandwich the truth claim of, of, of verse 9. So if you want to think of, of this section of verses kind of like a double stuff Oreo cookie, right? There's darkness on the outside and there's that good white stuff in the middle. 8 and 10 are the, are the darkness. Verse 9, the good, the good white truth. And let's look at these false claims real quickly. They are similar, right? In verse 8, we have no sin. In verse 10, we, we have not sinned. Apparently, there was a heretical teaching in John's day that promoted some idea of sinlessness, that you could be sinless, that you could live sinless. And the important thing to note here is that John never refutes the need for sinlessness to approach God. You won't find that in the text. He never refutes the idea that we need to be sinless to approach God. Because God is light and does not tolerate darkness in his presence. John just rejects the, the heretics, a basis for sinlessness. It's not by self-works. It's not by goodness of, of yourself that makes you fit to stand before God. It is only by having the righteousness of Christ accredited to your account that makes you fit to stand before God, that cleanses you of all sin and makes you right before God. That's what we just learned at the end of verse 7. But all those in verses 8 and 10 that, that are making these false claims, they are giving evidence that they reject the truth of God's word. The, the, the truth that says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The truth that says there is none righteous, no, not one. The truth that says there is none that seeks after God. There is none that does good. The, the, the truth of God's word that says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They reject those truths. And they make God out to be a liar. 
which he certainly is not. But, and far worse for themselves is not only are, are they calling God a liar, but they are deceiving themselves. And they are unaware that they are still walking in darkness. They think they're good, but they're still in darkness and they're headed for destruction. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 4, or excuse me, 4, 4. He says, the God of this world has blinded their eyes, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, sin is further compounded by covering it up or denying it. And it moves a person closer to final destruction. But even as followers of Christ, there are times when we deceive ourselves by skirting around the truth. We skirt around the light. We, we, instead of practicing honest confession. What does that look like practically? Uh, if you have a bulletin, you have the insert in there. On the back of that insert, I, I've, I've listed some ways in which we can skirt around the truth. And I want us to examine ourselves and see, am I guilty of any of these things? Because I put a, a long list, and, and that's not even an exhaustive list, of ways in which we hide and we don't come to, to true confession. You know, I'll, I'll go through some of these. First and foremost, there's just straight-up denial. It's not just a, a river in Egypt. It is flat-out refusal to admit the truth, to admit wrongdoing. We deny flat-out, I didn't do it. And similar to that is cover-up. We hide our sin. We hide from the truth and places of the truth like, like the church, Christian community, microgroup. We hide from those. We, we try to stay in darkness. But another one is deflection. And, and deflection is simply doing something to avoid scrutiny, like changing the subject. We shift the focus from ourselves and any examination of ourselves, and we try to put it on something else. I've given you at least three ways we do that. There's what's called whataboutisms. We see this a lot in politics. Yeah, I know my candidate is flawed, but what about that guy and his politics? They're terrible. We shift the flame, we shift the focus and the blame from, from us to somebody else. Well, what, yeah, but what about that person's sin? Instead of focusing on what, what's wrong in our own hearts. There's blame shifting. That's what Adam and Eve did. You know, it, 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 God, it's really somebody else's fault that this happened. It's not mine. You know, Adam said, it, it, was, it was the woman you gave me. And then the woman said, it, it was the serpent who deceived me. Shifting the blame, not taking full responsibility. They're shooting the messenger. And, and, and we see this happen a lot where a person will try to nitpick and find flaws in the person who is confronting someone with sin in order to, to, to take the focus off themselves. If I can discredit the messenger, then I don't have to deal with the message, what we say or what we think. In addition to, de, 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 in, in addition to deflection, there's projection. And, and, and that's where we, we, we see our own faults on somebody else or in somebody else's life, whether it's real or imagined. Instead, and we ignore and we fail to, uh, to see them in ourselves and we excuse them in ourselves. You, you may know that, that a person who, who is unfaithful to their spouse, they often are, are very jealous people. 
They're often suspicious that their spouse is unfaithful to them. It's, it's projection. They're projecting their own, own faults onto someone else. What about this one? What about self-justification? You know, I, I really have valid reasons why this is okay. You know, I, I, you know I, I really didn't mean to say that, but I was just stressed out. I was having a tough day, and you know, um, I really didn't mean it, so it's, it's okay. We're trying to justify ourselves, justify our actions. There's valid reasons why this isn't sin. Or maybe we use a tactic like qualifying. You know, it's not really that bad. It's not hurting anyone. You know, it's certainly not as bad as, as this sin and this person over here and what they're doing. We try to qualify our sin. Or, or, or here's one we need to, to watch out for in, in our microgroups as, as we move toward accountability, and that's th- something called equivocation. It's where we use vague or generic uh, expressions to mislead or hedge uh, and avoid confessing specific sins. It's so that we'll appear better than we actually are. You know, uh, you know we, we might hem and haul around and say, you know, I've, I've really been struggling in, in this area. Can you pray for me? But we never get to the point of what, what that area actually is. What is that specific sin? We hem and haul around it. We, we are still trying to hide and still trying to look better than we are, actually are. We equivocate. Uh, there's also a low view of sin, uh, which keeps us from confession oftentimes because we are ignorant of the pervasiveness of our own sin, of our own brokenness. We, we, only, we, we only pay attention to big sins and we ignore the, the respectable sins. Uh, or, and we also ignore the deadly consequences of our sin. And how about this one? There have been times in my life when I've been guilty of this one instead of confession. I'm just going to make amends for it. You know, I realize I messed up, but you know what? I'm just, I just got to try harder. I got to do better. I got to serve in more ways. I got to be more faithful. I got to read my Bible more. And, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and in doing so, I, I am saying without saying that I am capable of atoning for my own sins if I just try hard enough. Instead of coming to God in true confession, I'm trying to make up for it. I'm trying to be Jesus on the cross, and I am certainly not, and neither are you. Lastly, this is one to watch out for in microgroups as well. It's just commiserating. You know, we might might talk about our sin, and we might have a a cathartic moment where we, we say, you know, yeah, I'm messy, and you're messy, but God understands. He knows. He knows all about our messiness. You know, and when we do that, we, we have this temptation to, uh, to, to not be convicted anymore, not to be challenged anymore by our sins because, you know, it's just part of who I am. But all of these and so many more are vain attempts to stay in the darkness, to stay hidden, to avoid true confession. But in contrast to that, what is true confession? What is true confession? I'll give you a definition that I've been working on this week, and that's this. True confession is an honest admission of guilt and willingness to take responsibility for one's, for, for one's wrongdoing in agreement with God and his word. It'll be accompany, accompanied by godly remorse and a grace-born desire to repent and fight sin with an increasing hatred of sin and love for Christ. And that's through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
instead of trying to hide through, through various means, we come to God and admit that what his word says about us is true. That what his word says about our sin is true. And in contrast to hiding in the darkness, we have this beautiful if-then promise of verse 9. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But with that beautiful promise, we... Why do I still struggle to confess my sins? Why do you still struggle to confess your sins, even though we have 1 John 1, 9 as a promise? Well, I think we do for three reasons. Number one, we have an incorrect view of self. And that simply we fail to understand the depths of our own depravity, the depths of our own sin and brokenness. And the, but the truth is, the closer we grow to God, the more we realize our, our own sinfulness and the less confident we feel about our own righteousness apart from Christ. That's the irony there. The closer we get to Christ, the more we sense our own inadequacy, our own depravity. But not only do we have an incorrect view of, of self, we have an incorrect view of God as well. You see, we fail to understand the depths of his grace we, we, we view God as he, he's eager to punish instead of being willing to forgive. We think, you know, that God's up there and he's like, at 1.30 today, Josiah is going to mess up and when he does, I'm just going to zap him and I can't wait for that moment. That's how we view God sometimes, as eager to punish instead of willing to forgive. And we also fail to understand just how deep his his gaze is you know we're like adam and eve we think we can hide in our sin like he doesn't already know and see everything that happens that's that, that's the second reason why we don't confess our sins and the third one is simply idolatry and that's what i what i mentioned earlier a little bit earlier we love our sin more than we love god and that's hard to admit sometimes but, but I tell you, that would be a great place to, to start a confession to God. Say, God, I am struggling with this specific sin. And I have to admit to you right now that I love it more than I love you. But I don't want that to be the case. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you do a work in me so that I, I love you more than I love it? Where I see it for, for as ugly as you see it. And I see you for as beautiful as you are. That would be a great place to start confession, to admit that. And sometimes we don't. We're afraid of that. But the text is telling us here that those who walk in fellowship with God, based on the perfect work of Jesus Christ, that's how we walk in fellowship with God, they will honestly confess their sins. And that's the irony in the text here this morning, is that those who try to cover up their sin to appear righteous are actually proving that they are not righteous. Whereas the righteous are those who admit their sin and they confess it honestly and open, openly to, to God and, and they see their need for forgiveness from Christ. And see, the mind-blowing uh, fact of this, this text this morning is that Christ not only forgives us, but he cleanses us from our sin. He cleanses us. He completely wipes our slate clean when we come to him in confession. But it's important to note that God doesn't do that. He doesn't cleanse us because he's some indulgent parent that just lets us get away with everything. 
That's not why he does it. You see, we've already established that God is light, not darkness. He doesn't tolerate darkness in his presence. So then how do we reconcile those two ideas? How is a perfect and holy God faithful and righteous when he forgives and cleanses us from our sin? Well, verse 7 has already stated it, but, we'll, but chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 are going to flesh that out in greater detail. So let's look at, look at our final point this morning, and that's a reconciling truth. And that's this, Christ qualifies us to walk in the light through his advocacy and atoning sacrifice. Look at verses one and two again. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You see, John's goal in writing this was to encourage us that victory over sin is possible through Christ. You know, it would be false to state that, 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 that as a believer we are not able to sin. You know, we have too much personal experience to know otherwise. And that's what John is re- really combating earlier in the passage. This idea that, that, that as believers we're, we are unable to sin. But the truth of the passage is that a believer is able not to sin. Because th- th- that, that is we can have victory over our sins through the Son of God who saves us, through the Word of God that guides us, through the Spirit of God who indwells us and empowers us. And when we do sin, it is a violation of our new nature in Christ rather than the natural outworking of a life apart from Christ that is dead in sins and trespasses. But maybe you're here this morning and you still feel the need to hide in shame and darkness because of your sins. You wonder, how, how in the world can I ever be worthy to walk before God? How can I ever walk in fellowship with a God who's holy? You believe in the holiness of God, and you see yourself this morning as unholy and unrighteous as, and unfit to be in his presence. That's why the gospel is such great news this morning. As a believer, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In the throne room of heaven, Jesus Christ stands ready to speak on our behalf, interceding to the Father with us. You know, when Satan comes to accuse us before God, as he does, John Phillips puts it this way. He is met by the advocate, and all he has to do is raise his pierced hands, and Satan is silenced. You see, Jesus is not asking the Father for leniency, or injustice like an unscrupulous trial lawyer would do a judge. That's not what Jesus is asking for. You see, Jesus' nail scars are vivid reminders that he's already paid the price. He's already paid the price for our sins himself. That justice has already been met on the cross. And the Father is now righteous in exonerating us from all sin. Because not only is Jesus our advocate who intercedes to the Father, He is our propitiation. And I know that's a big Bible word. We don't use that word in everyday language. But it simply means this. Christ is our atoning sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God against our sins and satisfies the debt we owe God because of them. You see, the blood of Christ shed on the cross is sufficient to cover not only our sins, but the sins of the entire world. 
and all who will receive Christ by faith can have their sins be forgiven and cleansed and be brought into that same intimate fellowship with God. What an overwhelming thought this morning. There's that old hymn we sing once in a while before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. The second verse goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's an overwhelming thought this morning, but is it true of you? Or are you still hiding in the darkness because of your sin? Maybe you've tried your best over a lifetime to sew together a fig leaf patchwork of good works, of church attendance, of a moral lifestyle to try to cover the fact that you're sinful. But none of those things will give you right standing with God. And all they will do is deceive you and leave you empty-handed when you stand before God one day. It is only by the perfect work of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, that we can be cleansed and forgiven and made to walk in right fellowship with God. Will you receive Christ by faith today, if that is you? But you know, Christian, those old habits, they die hard. From time to time, we still find ourselves trying to hide trying to avoid confession by, by, by a myriad of means. We try to stay in darkness with our sin instead of confessing it. But I want to remind you one, once more, I want to plead with you. There is only death and there is only destruction in sin and darkness. Life is found in the light. Come to the light, please. Allow it to expose your sin and reveal to you the goodness of God's grace and forgiveness. It's abundant far more so than you could ever imagine, far more so than, than the depths of your sin is the depths of God's grace. So let's look at a few practical applications as we close this morning. The first one is simply repent and believe the gospel. If you're here without Christ, see yourself as sinful and undone, unable to save yourself, and see Christ's work as perfectly satisfying God's demands. Come to him in faith. Believe the gospel. Believer, we need to believe the gospel too because at times we don't. But, but some questions to ask ourselves as we examine. Number one, how closely am I walking in fellowship with God and others? What's holding me back from a deeper walk? Maybe there's some shame. Maybe there's some guilt. Maybe there's some things that need to be confessed. What's holding me back? A second question to that, how willing am I to really confess my sins? And what do I need to believe about the gospel to help me be more transparent with God and others? And then finally, who can I partner with to help in the fight against sin and and point to love Jesus more? That's why we push microgroups so much. They are not a cure-all, they're not a magic bullet, but as we get in them, that. We, we, we can find like-minded partners who can help us fight against our sin, can help, can help point us to love Jesus more. We all need it. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, as we come to our time of invitation, 
Where has God's word convicted you this morning? What, what has God's word convicted you of? Are there sins that you're still trying to hide? Come to the light this morning. Confess them to God. And I would encourage you to, to find a group of people that you can trust and confess them to them as well and, and, and ask them to help you be a, 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 make you accountable and, and can encourage you when you're struggling with the gospel truth and, and, and not, just, not just with platitudes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning. We thank you, thank you for the overwhelming grace that, that you have given us through Jesus Christ. We do not deserve it in the least bit, but Father, you, you are so gracious to give it. Father, help us not to hide in our darkness and sin any longer, but help us to come to the light and find life and find health and find strength, find healing and restoration, fellowship with you, fellowship with other believers. Dear God, may that be so of us today. Help us to see the gospel for all it is this morning. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand to our feet this morning, if you need, need to uh, use the altar.